I guess it's the hit to your income. There are moments where you think, oh, I should have been doing X, Y, Z job and keeping a low profile and just head down, bum up and just not having any of these sort of fanciful thoughts about getting a product that no one's ever seen before out onto the market. But then it always comes back to, but we really need this product to be on the Mm. And you sort of take sacrifices on. At the same time, hopefully not being too stupid and becoming absolutely destitute and your family have no roof over their head. So that's so Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. I'm Angelique, and on the episode of Multiple Hut today, I'm talking to Alison Gartner, the co-founder of Evidently, an Australian startup whose technology can analyze complex healthcare data to guide clinicians in their practice. This is a hologram healthcare data because we're now generating more data than ever, And we don't tap into the full potential of these so-called data lakes due to the difficulty of cleaning, standardizing, and linking different data sets to actually produce actionable insights. And then who owns the data? With evidently, there's no exchange of data. The medical center will use their own data and question it in their own way. They have company doing some of this out there, but there's a big need for fast, reliable and robust technology that can be used by the clinicians themselves with adaptable parameters to tweak questions to reflect real clinical scenario. Alison has a unique perspective because she has both experience as a co-founder and as an investment manager. So she has seen it all before and now it's unraveling for her. Awesome multiple hats insight here. Let's hear from Alison on how it all started for her and where is it going. I'm Alison Gartner. I'm CFO at Evidently. Can you tell me more about Evidently? What's the current pitch for the company? So Evidently is a software as a service, although we don't want to be a service, but we'll go into that later, for analysing complex health data. Healthcare data, so coming from HCP, from doctors, from customers, from researchers. Yep, it can be from multiple data sites, so emergency medical records, depositories of data. Ultimately, it could be from devices. All the wealth of data that's coming out of everything that's being generated through health. At the moment, there is a real issue with finding out how to actually use that data and make it useful and get insights from it. There's a big lake, if you like, of data, and we don't know how to read it. So Mm. basically, in very lay people's terms, clean it and put it into a common standard. That's a globally recognised common standard, and then we can run stats on it. it. It's a very simple outcome, but it's a very complex process. Many people have tried. If I'm a doctor and I have a question, I come to you, I come with my own data and then you, you do the analysis, the cleansing, and then you answer my question in some ways, or do you go and fetch data for me? Well, the beauty of it is that we don't take it out of the owner's, the custodian's hands. So it's basically tools that you pull down from the cloud and the custodian uses it on their own data. And that's part of the complexity in health. There's the issue of security and privacy. 
So we don't take data out anywhere and sell it back to you or anything like that. It's it's all done by the end user. That sounds good. So today is really about your journey founding evidently. But before we embark on your founder journey, I'd like to start with you, Alison. So can you tell me why did you pick biochemistry and molecular biology at university to start with? I guess as a kid, I, I actually always thought I'd be a designer or architect. <laughs> but I had fantastic teachers specifically in year 11 and 12 and growing up in Canberra, I had fantastic teachers, science teachers. I had a wonderful biology, chemistry and physics teachers and they just completely inspired me. So I ended up going to university doing molecular biology, biochem and economics as well. At the same time? At the same time. And then at that point I thought, you know, maybe I would end up working for the World Bank and helping to feed the masses of people out there who, you know, who had no food. So I ended up doing an honours degree in nitrogen fixation. That was the idea of getting plants, non-legume type plants, to actually fix nitrogen. People are still trying today. It's a perfect, you know, and and people's careers have been built on this, but it would be amazing, of course, if anyone could figure out how to do it. But that was the basis for it. Then I ended up wanting to do my PhD in Sydney. So I moved up to Sydney, but I ended up getting a, a job for the interim, and that was in financial markets at Westpac based on my economics degree. Now, the reason why I did that was because at that time, this is the late 90s, there was a lot going on with um, the dot-com bubble, Y2K, (laughs) all these things going on, and including the Human Genome Project and financial markets. Everything was just, it was so bubbling with energy, and I, I really wanted to be part of that. But then funnily enough, when the Human Genome Project was at its completion, I had a former professor who was actually advising Solera at the time, who were leading the race in the Human Genome Project. And he called me and said, would you like to work for this guy that I know in Sydney (laughs) investing in biotechnology? And that's how I ended up then in a family office environment with a portfolio of biotechnology companies. They were all Australian. Hang on, let's take a step back there. So you've done your honours in molecular biology and biochemistry, yep. economics at the same time, and then your PhD yep. was around the human genome? I didn't end up doing my PhD because I thought I should work and earn some money and ended up in financial markets. And at the time, that human genome project got me inspired to go back into science again. And But I ended up going in a very different path, looking at it from investing in new science, in innovation. So I was coming at it from another direction. But I could already speak the language once you go through the university process, I suppose, reading all those papers and things, you you end up becoming familiar with the jargon. Very useful jargon. Yeah. And then combining that with business, of course, investing in, in companies was a completely new area for me, but I always liked to being pushed out of my comfort zone. So so I went from looking at nitrogen fixation to working in money markets and foreign exchange to working in a family office environment. And in those days, you didn't do really two things that were very disparate like that. You didn't just do that. These mm-hmm. days, a lot of kids do double degrees. They'll do commerce and agriculture or something. And you can see today, 20 years later, how they're kind of fitting. I'd meet kids today who are doing music in business. 
Mm. You know, there's to be doing completely different disciplines and these kids are forging different paths for themselves. And definitely at the time there were maybe only five of us at university who were doing these very weird combination degrees and then it was becoming more and more common. Mm. But it enabled me then to forge a completely different and unique path. So I wouldn't do it differently, I don't think. If I would have stayed just down one path, I might have been now trying to speed up my knowledge in business and finance. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I mean, business can really be combined with anything, right? Because at the end of the day, oh, anything. It's high, yeah. it has to be one component unless you're doing pure academic research. But otherwise, yes. So Exactly. Or these days, the social media and science would be awesome. That's true. <laughs> science communication, yeah. It's very fun for me because in France, and I might have changed since I left, but it's like really you separate between literature, science, and economics. And yes. we don't mix. But I agree with you, much bigger perspective if you can do that. So Oh, absolutely. That's great. And so, yes, you stayed about 12 years in investing in biotechs and Australian companies. Was it Australian companies? Yeah, we predominantly did Australian companies. The reason for that is is that you can actually go visit them. <laughs> yeah. You can go and talk to them and um, and yeah. sit down quietly, calmly and listen what they're saying instead of day in, day out, you know, one day here, trip there. It just made it completely different. And really, in hindsight, it was the right way of managing a portfolio. I think you need to have feet on the ground, so to speak. Mm. I understand. So can you take us through what you were doing there? And first, uh, help us navigate between the funding jargon, seed, angel, venture capital, which one were you doing and at what stage do they come? Well, in the investing environment, we were doing all of it. So we were doing listed companies on ASX, Mm -hmm. unlisted companies, private companies. So within there, there was a variation of angel, as in putting money in very, very early. And nothing may come of it, but it may then get to the next stages. Then there's the seed funding. There's Then you've got the series funding. Possibly then you have exits. If the technology is good enough before it has to even go public, it might get bought out. Or you partner with someone, distribution partners or another technology partner, or you list on, a, on an exchange. And a few mm. of the companies we actually had then NASDAQ listed, so we did everything and including funding funds. There were some original Australian life science funds tried to get off and off the ground and we actually backed some of those funds to get off the ground and they are now quite large. And so it was all about helping the ecosystem to grow in Australia because my boss at the time, who was an absolutely wonderful intellect, I suppose, as well as a business person, and he, he had invested in Solera. <laughs> And he'd seen the power of what investment could do in, in Silicon Valley and in Europe. And he came back to Australia and said, we've just got to start this here. Mm. So that's why we were so broad in our in- investing. And we didn't, didn't always win. It's a really difficult game. And because the ecosystem was so nascent here, and I would argue that it's still quite nascent, you know, lacking certain funding in certain areas at certain times, we really did it, yes, to make money, but also to build the ecosystem, but also because we enjoyed it. Mm. And carrying that sort of stress, because a lot of them statistically won't work, carrying that stress, you may as well enjoy what you're doing, otherwise don't do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, 
I'm told that the biggest hurdle in Australia is access to capital. You know, in the Silicon Valley, there mm. is a lot more capital going around, ups and downs, obviously. But Australia is on the other side of the world. It's a major hurdle. Is that a perspective you share? Yes, and absolutely it was. So in the early 2000s, when this really started taking off in Australia, there were only a handful of groups that could fund or mm. very few high net worths who were knowledgeable enough to kind of take the risk. And I suppose those few funds had kind of control like of the market as well, because there were a few and they all were spending money in similar areas because, well, you don't want to go into some kind of a, a risk on your own either. So you'd have a lot of co-investing going on. Mm. Very few would stick their neck out and really take a risk on their own. So you've got different stages, not only of the company that you're investing in, but stages of the venture capital thinking or the high net worth thinking. So traditionally, a high net worth person might be able to invest, long, be more patient and invest longer and be able to follow rounds and not worry about cost basis. And those, they worry about cost basis, but they are able to long-term manage cost basis, whereas funds invest and then they run out of money. They have to set up a new fund and then invest, top up their investment again, and they're at a different cost basis. They have all these uh, other kind of issues. Mm. And then, of course, they've got the pressure of exiting or creating value out of those assets and being able to exit and get out and then maybe put the money back into younger companies that are coming through again. Whereas the high net worth family offices are much more flexible. Mm. They're able to stay into a portfolio company much longer, help more because they don't have to panic, sell. You know, there are all sorts of various nuances to this. And I think these days, actually, we're seeing many more funds, especially during COVID, don't know a main cornerstone investor of some sort. New funds are finding it difficult to raise capital unless you've got a, a source of capital that you've pre-agreed somehow. I, I don't know, a main cornerstone investor, a backer of some sort. Um, but I think there's much more competition now. So almost the VCs now and possibly even the family offices, when they're trying to look for the, the good stories that are still there, they have to compete more. You know, the company can actually ask, why should you? Why should I have you as an investor? Wow, that's such a great perspective because, you know, from a founder perspective or from people trying to get this funder, they feel like they don't have the leverage. It's the other way around. So they're all trying to pitch yeah. and think, oh my, is, is yeah. someone please listen to me? Whereas you're saying that it's actually a two-way game. It's a two-way game, but... We're not naive, and now I'm putting my a founder of an actual company hat on, we're not naive enough to also think, you know, we'll take whoever we want mm. when we want. You know, that's the I ideal because then you can plan how long you can create your business plan for, depending on the, the quality of the investor and sort of the help that they can offer you. But I think what's going on in the States now, we just saw the Silicon Valley Bank debacle going on. Oh, yeah. It, you know, there are a lot of companies that will be seeking capital this year and it's going to be quite difficult. So and anyone with any dry powder, any venture capital groups out there might, again, the favourite tilting in their, yeah, it's in their favour again to mm. start negotiating on price. So that could be a little bit of a, a risky period coming forward. And so... That sounds like a bit of a really fascinating environment. So you get to pick and choose who gets funding and who does not. Is it a conflicting process? As in, you know, some project being attractive because of the science, but perhaps too risky. 
and other being mm. better de-risked but less interesting. What's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you're talking again about yeah the venture capital funders side. Just going back to that idea of the reason why a lot of groups like to co-invest as well is to de-risk in terms of hopefully more than one group have actually validated a technology <laughs> yes. instead of just following one. But definitely a few key requirements for a company before you get venture funding. Usually, and I might say like management, management, management. <laughs> okay. As in the people managing? Yeah, or it is actually the technology combination management and the uniqueness of the opportunity. So it's not just that I've got an amazing technology that's a me too in another market. If it's a technology that's unique, truly unique globally, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And then then the management to actually run that. It's, it's really an excellent question for a VC group because they won't be able to tell that in a company that's just sort of nascent, but the company can, as it grows, you know, who do they bring in? What skills do they bring in at what stage? Are they open to learning? Are they open to flexible thinking? You get things like founderitis where they don't want to let go and they want to control everything. Right. The venture capital, the venture capitalist is saying, no, 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 we need to actually pursue this idea because otherwise, you know, road A may only get you this far, but road B might get you to, you know, this far. And and it's that listening and I suppose that trust in who have invested in you. Again, that comes back to if you can be a little bit pickier about who invests in you, yes, they've got money, but do they also have a network in this space you might want to grow in is actually quite important. Or mm. do they have other skills? you know, access to legal accountants, you know, maybe some knowledgeable potential board members who who have skill domain and all those sorts of things. So you do advise that people are somehow a little bit picky about who they take on as funders? Yeah, but like I was saying in the last, let's say, 15 years, if not 20 years, it's, it's sort of take the money where you can get it. <laughs> yeah. just, just take it and grow. But I think you should be a little bit more careful. Mm. All right, well, let's see how it plays out. So seeing all these people doing their startup, is that what inspired you to actually found yours? Did you want it to be on the other side of investing? or It's funny. To start this story, I have to go back to my venture capital days. <laughs> yeah, you tell me. At the time, in, the mid, in, in between, say, 2010, 2015, and, and this goes a Back to the what sort of products do you invest in? A lot of venture money was going into solving cancer, big projects. And then it was slowly moving to, you know, they realized that's a 10 year game and it may not even work. And it may not get funding to phase three. So it will never reach the market. Then there, there was this trend to moving to diagnostics because it's a shorter path to market because you don't need the full blown mm-hmm. massive thousands of clinical trial. You can have products that are comparable to the current gold standard and be a little bit better and it, it will get through. Then it was also moving to more to med tech. This is the boom of devices, right? Mm. Many devices measuring Parkinson's shaking or Fitbits were becoming big and trendy. You know, that Apple Watch were monitoring how many steps you take and your blood pressure and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And 
at that time, everyone thought, oh, I'll come up with a great app and Apple will buy me and put me on their platform. Mm. But that wasn't happening. Apple was saying, hey, you can rent my platform, true, true. <laughs> so so all these device companies going, oh, hang on a second. And then there were other companies saying, oh, you know, if we rent an um, iPad to a clinician, they might be able to monitor it. And with a chip in, say, a puffer for asthma, they might rent and we, we'll, make, we'll make X amount of money per month, you know, renting this device and getting information from puffers and helping kids. And people were sort of thinking also at the time, well, hang on a second, is the value in the device or is the value in the data? And more and more then you, you would see a lot of devices coming out of China and India or whatever, and you'd realise quickly it's the data that was the valuable thing because you, yeah. could, you could buy a $2 watch. Right? So that's where this idea started coming. So the values in the data. Then Roche bought a company called Flatiron and it was a platform of oncology data, just random data, and they paid something like $2 billion for it. And everyone started going, oh, my God, if we start getting platforms and loading heaps of data onto it, we're going to make heaps of money. But in actual fact, you need to be able to read the data and figure out what it means. Yeah. So that was around the time I then met my co-founder, who's actually the founder of the technology, Guy Safnat. And he said, Ali, I've got a really good idea. So I've been working on it for 10 years or even longer. He started his PhD um, looking at why people aren't using clinical decision support which had been around since the 60s, apparently. Very, very, very rudimentary early stage. You know, if you've got strep A, do you take an antibiotic or not? What? Very, very basic stuff. Mm. And so people aren't using that? No, well, humans don't trust computers yet. And even now with, with data plays and health, you might get pushback saying it's rubbish in, rubbish out. You hear this all the time. Yeah. Is the information crap? The answer I'm going to get is based on rubbish, so why should I use it? And at the end of the day, the legally binding issues or, or outcomes still lie with the doctor. Yeah. So there's still that element of trust that we've got to build up. And so that is part of what we've built into our system is that ability for a doctor to audit them, their own variables. Let's say if you've got an algorithm, they can audit what's going on. And they can mm. even adjust it backwards without starting all the way again. So that for us is incredibly important. So there was this moment where we said, oh, this is actually going to be really useful. The ability to do these things with still privacy, you know, no data is leaking out of the custodian's hands. We can audit our own variables that are going in and it's going to give people, they are able to ask questions of it of the data and actually get answers and maybe go back and change it a little bit, but they don't have to go all the way back to the start. And at the moment, a lot of this work is being done by people in a room, business informatic people or informaticians who are working in hospitals. And, you know, you could ask one question and it could take you 10 minutes to get an answer. It could take a day. It could take a year, depending on what the question is. And then they can prepare a report and it might be like how many cases of sepsis in the hospital end up in the ICU. And, but you could ask so many various questions and, mm. and then say, I wonder what would happen if they went on this drug instead of this one. And, yeah, what Look at all the variables, yeah. So 
I was thinking, surely someone is coming up with this, like Apple, Google, you know, Microsoft. They must all be working on these sorts of areas. And there are so many companies out there trying to do this. So that's the then scary part about understanding who your competitors are and how far advanced are you compared to them. Is it a story for Australia or is it a story that's got global application? How solid is the technology? Is there IP? You know, and then suddenly you're sort of sitting there going, oh, actually, this has got all the elements that you look for for a really great technology. Let's set up the company and then build out management and see how far we can get this product. Glow internationally. We're not thinking it's just Australia. We're thinking globally. So is evidently operating globally now? So we have a US subsidiary and we're at the pilot stage, if you like. Mm. So we need to get the product out there and used. And that's, that's the stage that we're at now. We accepted some funding last year to build out the group and to get a lot of these pilots done. So it's, it's really crucial. You need feedback, you need testimonials, and you need then licensing. All right. So five years in, you're expanding to the US with a round of funding and on a pilot stage. Yes. Awesome. That sounds yes. really good. So, okay. So you've got Dr. Guy Safnat, the inventor of the Evidently Tech, I suppose, finds you because of your experience in investment. And now yep. Evidently counts four founders. So how did the two other came about? Well, I suppose while I was talking to Guy, the guy also knew he'd need someone who would be able to sell and run the company as a CEO. So that's Greg. So he's a co-founder. And Guy's a, a previous mentor, if you like, but on the academic side is Enrico. So he's fantastic. He knows bioinformatics. He's globally recognized. So those kind of, that skill domain knowledge, and Greg has got Apple, Microsoft sort of background, that, that knowledge of how to build this out, how to progress this mm-hmm. and get it to a sale is really the stage that we're at now. That's what you have to work on. And then you build out with the board as well. So day one, Guy and yourself having this conversation, how long before you bring the next to co-founder? I think Greg was even at the same time. Enrico was, you know, he was always there. Right. So from the start. Yeah. So when we say, oh, let's, let's form a company and it's actually really happening that, you know, we all get on board with it. First thing, everybody was on board from discussion or did you have to do a bit of convincing? No, no, no. It was that everyone was on board. That was like, yeah, we can see this product. Yeah, we can see why this is here. We can see the purpose. Yeah, let's jump on. Great. <laughs> Energy. <laughs> Fantastic. So four co-founder, and then what's the first step from there? Well, you have to build out the team of engineers to keep building the tech, making sure that the tech's working, getting it to minimum viable product stage. We're beyond that now. And the team was very small. We were six people last year still. Okay. So during COVID, when hospitals were just completely focused on COVID, we did have quite a big slowdown. And people, as we talked to people, they realized they actually do need to get digitally ready. So COVID really advanced that, I suppose, exaggerated that gap. 
that we had. There was a lot of data being generated and we were all watching it every day with COVID. You know, what were the stats? What were the numbers at 11 o'clock every morning? <laughs> How many people had COVID? Which vaccine did they have? Do they have any side effects? All this sort of stuff. And so we were generating huge amounts of data. And so people were sort of saying, well, hang on, we need to build repositories for all this. We need to be able to use it and do something with this data because it's very valuable. As we were then coming out of COVID, we realised, you know, we really, the world or Australia is getting ready. I've heard people say that Australia is about five years behind the world, let's say the US and Europe, in terms of digital preparedness. Mm-hmm. So we've got some catching up to do, and I'm talking about that gathering all the information, creating the lakes in the warehouse, mm-hmm. gathering all the data for you to analyze. So there's still that level of building of the digital capacity going on. So we're we're really seeing traction now. I suppose in Australia, they've got an absolutely wonderful opportunity to be prepared for the next one. COVID, this one wasn't won't be the first or last. It wasn't the first. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we humans and we co-evolve with bacteria and viruses and exactly. so they will come. And they've been around way longer than us. Ex- exactly <laughs> right. And they're part of the ecosystem and sometimes we win, sometimes we don't. Hello to Spanish flu. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A hundred years ago. So, all right. Well, so we've got a four co-founders on board. You build a team. That's your first thing, finding the right team to develop the tech and the minimal viable product. What's, what does it look like, this minimal viable product? It's something that's ready to be used or tested in a pilot pilot trial. Yeah, but what is it like for you? What does it look for, evidently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we tested it on synthetic data first, so we don't we don't break anything that the hospital gives us, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you run it on synthetic data and you just ask questions. You can ask questions of it. And you see how fast it works, what sort of questions you can ask of it, how much storage capacity does it have, those sorts of basic things. Yeah. What's your control? How do you evaluate the quality of your answer? Ah, well, we use previous, I suppose, human generated results. Mm. So we so still doctors would look answers. at, yeah. So you'd look at a study that someone's done and, and research and produced publication or a report, and we see if we can get the equivalent mm. result and how we got to that. So that's what you would use. And so how long did it take to actually build this minimal viable product and get um, accurate data? So it would have been in total, and this is not necessarily always full-time, it would have been about 10 years. This was part of Guy's project, right? Okay, so we had done all this validation, but then your team of engineer, was that to do a scalability? Why did you need more work to be done? That's right. You need to make it user-friendly. You need to now create the actual interface that people will use, fail it, see where the glitches are, what else needs to be developed, what areas would it block some progress. You know, you've got to make sure that it's ready for customers. So there are many areas, I suppose, individual areas that make the product whole that you want working smoothly. So that's what the next lot of engineers do. Great. So you had a head start, a 10 years head start from the technology and then you made it usable for people. Exactly. We had a head start. And we are also working on new, um, I suppose, call it research and development. So we're developing new areas all the time, creating new IP. So it's got to keep going ahead of time. The more we go out and speak to customers and customers go, wow, that's a great idea. And some of the feedback is, oh, we should have made that ourselves. And they try and go back and make it themselves. 
<laughs> and then they find it's too hard and they come back to and you. And it's really hard. You know, sometimes maybe a company will figure out a way to do it for themselves, but then they wouldn't scale it to use for everybody. They would just keep it for themselves. So we have got a product that anybody can download. Okay. So is that how you define your value proposition from the start and then evolving with customer feedback? Yes, absolutely. The customer feedback gives you ideas on areas that they're interested in. We have a product that the customer feedback says, oh, it'd be really great if it did this. (laughs) And we might go, well, actually it can, but just to start with, we want to just start simply mm. and then we will build out capacity as well so customer feedback's absolutely but hang on on this one you know how steve job once said um he never looks at customer feedback or marketing research because as ford would have said famously if he had asked what people wanted they would have asked for faster horses how do you navigate this <laughs> how do you navigate this balance of taking on board the feedback but then perhaps filtering what should be pursued and what should not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it's absolutely a great question. And really you do have to focus, right? You've got a finite amount of money, you've got a small team and you've got a product that you've created already built on talking to clinicians and what's useful, what's not. So you get it to a certain level. That's what you go out and sell. But with these algorithms, you can create new areas or a vertical, sometimes they call them verticals, for what the product can actually do. So we absolutely go out with the product that we have at the moment, and then that's what needs to sell. And you have to focus on that. But the feedback, I think, is incredibly useful. So two questions there. First thing, how did you find the first customer? And how do you get the price point? It's hard work. That's really, really, really hard work because you're a small Australian company. You've got a great product, but you don't have any track record. Mm. So this is the same for a lot of startups. So why should I use you? And then in a year's time, you're old and I want to get someone else. Or with data, especially with software, it can be very sticky. So Mm -hmm. am I going to be stuck with you for 10 years and you're not doing what I actually want? This goes on all the time around the world. So it's a two-way question. The first thing is, so how do you find this first customer and, and buying that trust? And how do you get the price point? Because if you don't have that track record and they don't already trust you, how do you start selling or yeah. do you start for free? How, so, yeah, first customer and price point. Yeah. How do you define this? Yeah, so it is it is very difficult. So you are an unknown entity. You've got no track record. So usually you go in free you can go in free or get first mover who's interested enough to trial it a first mover is that early adopter or the same thing Uh, yeah an early adopter and for us it will be someone who like a clinician who actually does this a lot tries to use their own data so that that's that easier entry point that they understand that they need something like this and they they run it Mm. and see how, how it runs you absolutely need the trust there so it has to work every time. It has to be better than what they've already got. So you wouldn't approach a customer that is not digitally ready. And I was talking about that before, that a lot of people actually aren't. A lot of groups that we approach aren't even ready yet. 
Why do they have like all data on on paper, or where do they have this data? Well, some of them, some of them do. Some big hospitals have just in the last few years gone digital, so there's still that catching up period. Where I suppose you could say we're a little bit ahead of the curve, but in, in other ways, you'd say we're not because we just need to get there mm. very quickly. Some countries are already doing this, so. We need to catch up. Sorry if I'm speaking about Australia, but there are, you know, countries around the world that just need to catch up digitally and then they can start analysing their data. Mm -hmm. So you don't approach a customer that is not ready or don't understand even the concept of analysing your data and what the business proposition would be. We're trying to get to customers that already understand the space you're in Mm. and then branch out from there. So what, are you going to go in later and say, okay, we give you the EMR so that you can capture your data and then we'll help you analyzing it? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> oh, we're not going to compete with Epic and Cerner. I mean, that's, no. they're brilliant at what they do, right? Mm. So, but, but some groups still have to get on Epic and Cerner. Yeah, okay. So, so there's that, that step. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. All right, so then you start with clinician, which I suppose the network of perhaps Dr. Gis Tsafnat or Enrico Correa has been helpful in starting with this first one. And then from there, how many customers have you been working on? So we've done a few pilot trials at the moment and that, then that customer number is we need actual customers. It's usually through licensing agreements. So we have, we're still to get to that stage. Okay. And so to define that price point, how do you do it? Do you do it for feedback or for what it costs you? How do you do that? Yeah. So there are comparisons. So how much does the software cost that a hospital is already using? What does it do? And how much value do we create on top of that? Mm-hmm. What would we create? So there's that discussion around that. And it has to be really for what they would actually use it for. So there are some, it's not... It's not a fixed set price. Okay. But, and we also develop, you know, we may be able to discount. And it's, if I say it's more affordable, everyone can say I'm more affordable. This technology is, you, you bring it down off the cloud. So it's not like you're buying in a whole set of servers. Yeah. And, so it's flexible. Yeah, it's quite flexible. And then on the service side, we're, trying to be minimally service. So we'll, we'll be a bit more service heavy at the start to get the customer up and running, but it's really designed to be used by the end user. So we don't want to have a staff of a thousand analyzing data and then giving it back to the customer. That's not what we're about. Mm, I understand. Yeah. I understand the, the difference. And okay, so let's start a little bit of um, funding now because we have the little bit of the history of how you founded it, the technology, the minimal viable product, the first customer and engagement with clinicians. And, and then how did you fund those first years? Because we're four years in now right. and you have defined this price point, but obviously you are in early engagement. So did you have to start with funding from the beginning, which I imagine your experience was very handy there? Or how do you fund the first bit? Yeah, it's not the most stressful bit either. <laughs> it's oh, just scary. Okay, but it's it's a very stressful part of the journey because you're suddenly sitting around saying let's let's do this, but it needs people's activity. It needs hours. So the founders, some of us started part time. Mm-hmm. So you kind of keep a safety net on the site. <laughs> All right. For income, you know, we've all got families. Mm-hmm. 
we've all got, you know, got to keep roofs over our head. So there's a very practical side to this decision. And yes, you then need to raise capital. So the first bit is, you know, you usually say friends, families, fools, and that's a terminology, but I'm, I'm sure they also thought heavily about what they were doing mm. and also have people who are willing to support you. And if they don't understand what the technology is, but they have faith in the management, that's what you're, that's where that management, management, management comes from as well. You, you can get some financial support at the next level up, high net worth, net worth individuals and some very early stage venture capital groups who don't mind getting in at the very, very early stage, very few and far between. So is that what you've done, a combination of all? A combination of all. But that was stretched over the, let's say, three years, not four years. So in the very early days, we're just we're doing it by the smell of an oily rag. We were literally doing it just on the side. Oh, just on the side. So you, you kept your job. It can be extremely difficult. Or you do it part-time. You know, you have a part-time job. And it enables you to then spend time building up the company. Okay, that's fine. So the part-time job can help you support yourself. But then you told me that you needed a team of six to build yes. the software. So how do you cover payroll if you don't have funding yet? That, that's it. That's when you have to go in and raise money. So that's when you raise money through people who are supportive of the immediate cluster of people. And is it hard to get talent when you have very little funding? Because, you know, I imagine, especially the market yeah. is very competitive and you go there and you're like, oh, we're a startup and we can pay you very little. Why don't you go with me? Yeah, and we can't give you much money. I know, it's that. that's it. So that's the nature. It depends then on what we're actually doing, mm -hmm. what the end goal is and who you're doing it with. So if you can attract really top quality people, Maybe you can arrange to, you know, you give them some equity maybe because there's no way you can put them on payroll. Mm. It's a very fine balance. And then whatever money you do get in, you give it all to the engineers and as founders you don't take anything. As founders you don't take anything. For example, you know, you take a real risk. Yeah. You take a real, you really are taking a risk. And that's why I say that's a very stressful part, but there are also other st stressful parts. Yeah, so and how long does it take before you can actually pay yourself a salary? And, you know, as you say, you have families, so that's quite important. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I would argue that we're not taking what we would get on market with our normal, with a normal path of a job. We're still taking less, mm -hmm. but it's all about who we've brought in engineers. So we focus on them. Mm -hmm. So we look after those people. We have equity in the business, so that's there. But it doesn't cover you for monthly, but you can slowly start to build up some kind of meaningful salary or when it's responsible to do so. Mm. And so that might take five, six years or how long would it take from day one? It could be two years. It could be five years. Mm. It really depends. It really depends on how fast the team grows. And ultimately, you really need that. You know, a lot of companies do go to the market to raise capital. Mm-hmm very consistently for this purpose, right? And especially, I suppose, in software, if you have a minimum viable product, 90% of your expenses are staff, staffing. Okay. So it, that critical stage of how much money do you raise, can you get to revenue before you have to raise too much? But once you get to revenue, you suddenly actually put a value on your head because you can put multiples on revenues then. Mm. So there's that fine balance of how much 
dilution do you take by raising capital on the markets yeah. or from funders as opposed to when you start relying on revenue? Okay. So from your perspective, was the right time two years in to, to do the, um, the first round? Well, straight away. Straight away. Straight away. <laughs> straight away. Okay. Let's go straight away. <laughs> really do it straight away. Well, it depends how much patience you have as founders. You mean I have my money in the bank you have? Is that what yeah. you mean? <laughs> as in patience. <laughs> yes. At the end of the day, how supportive is your family, spouse, or, or current workplace if they let you? You know, there are a lot of startups that spin out of universities. Mm -hmm. There's always a bit of a, a conflict because you're, you're working at the university, but you're trying to build a, a startup off the ground, but you're still tied back to the university. So it's, it's a very complicated stage. Mm. And how about the board of directors? So I count two board members, two of them are women. How did you build this one? And what is, how crucial is the board? And what is their biggest impact? The board is incredibly important. And like with management, it'll change as you evolve. The skills on that board will change and evolve. So governance is incredibly important. It's important to have non-executive directors that are arm's length, they can see a bigger picture, if you like, and come back with questions about why you're doing it this way, why you're doing it that way. Whereas when you're an executive and you're sitting in the business, sometimes you're just totally focused on the business itself. You might miss something that's going on. Yeah, you, you lose perspective at some point. That's right. And we also have an investor-appointed board member, Louise. She is, you know, her skill domain in our area is incredible. Mm. So there's a bit of bit of everything in there and it depends on what path you want to take if you want to go full growth you build a certain board for that type of journey if you want a quick exit you build a board for a certain type of journey some people say you really just focus on the end game and the rest will kind of come naturally mm. but there's nothing wrong with being more strategic about it so you're talking about exit and if you want an exit, you build a certain board. Should company all consider an exit as a plan A, plan B, plan C, or is that a non-spoken word? If you're seeking money from venture capital, they will ask you, mm. when are you going to exit? <laughs> and so what's the best strategy about that? How does someone, what's the rationale? Where from our point of view. For your point of view. Yeah. yeah. So really, hopefully early on, you can say, we're not building this for an exit in two years. We're building it to grow. And some will say, don't even think about exit. Just go for the journey. And if it happens, just be aware of it. Be mindful of it. And if it's a great outcome, take it. I've seen this a million times. Well, a million times. In biotech, I've you know spent 15 years doing that. I've seen that so many times. Those opportunities that have come and gone, sometimes you need to take the money that's coming through the window. <laughs> mm. But in general, I would say go for the journey. Prepare for that longer journey to build value and be mindful of what's going on around you. What's competition doing? Where's your IP? What skills are on your board? And if someone comes and says, I want to buy you, mm. you decide, hey, that's actually a really great outcome or let's revisit in a year. And that, that may be gone and you may have made the wrong decision because you may not get another one. And so we, without going full on to the exit strategy, do you put in place stage gate for yourself with between the four of you or, and perhaps even with the board member on when to kill the idea, pivot the technology 
or even yeah. change market? What's the rationale of yeah. that? I think you do. You have to be flexible. You have to be thinking on your feet all the time. So a competitor may come out of left field. You try to watch what's going on, but they may be a quiet little Australian. <laughs> it might be us, but in another, another country, and you don't see it necessarily coming because there's those chat rooms don't talk about it or whatever, and um, all those platforms that look at startups aren't covering it. But you just have constantly be flexible. If you need to pivot, you need to pivot. Did you pivot already? We haven't yet. That's why I say you have to be flexible. But that's also why you do also keep building out the next generation technology. Mm. You keep building out your own pipeline in a way to stay ahead of the market. So there's a lot to think about. So tell mm. me about something. Scenario planning to future-proof companies. Is that something that you think is useful? And so just for the audience, scenario planning helps decision maker identify factors that might be the most impactful and then plan for different scenario and stress test of those factors. Is that something yes. that you use and that is useful to actually future-proof evidently strategy? Or do you think it's just a buzzword? No, I do. I actually think it's really helpful. Look at various scenarios, various possible valuations that you're at, various possible capital raising scenarios. How much do you raise? How much do you agree to dilute? Will we have five licensed deals at that time? Definitely mapping those scenarios out is very helpful. If not just the discipline of doing it and writing it down, and you may never look at it again, but it, then it's in everyone's head. Mm. And everyone's at least on the same page and I guess it makes you then alert or mindful of like I was saying when something comes from left field you're kind of oh I've already thought about that so you're ready to seize you're kind of ready a little you've done your homework and next year you may do that again and you'll have completely different scenarios and different outcomes again but just that you're at least thinking about it okay so that's something you do you practice yeah Okay. Fantastic. So, I mean, I understand that you still have a long journey ahead, but clearly quite a lot of progress has happened in the last four years. So what's the biggest next stage for you? Getting the growth in customer base or getting more features? Yes. Uh, more, more fit, both. Both. <laughs> Prioritize. Which one? We work in parallel. In parallel. All roads, you know, you keep building, you keep growing. I think, keep forging ahead. Yeah. So for you as a founder, and as you say, you have a family, what was your biggest stretch in this journey? I guess it's the hit to your income. There are moments where you think, oh, I should have been doing X, Y, Z job and keeping my head, <laughs> keeping a low profile and just head down, bum up and just not having any of these sort of fanciful thoughts about getting a product that no one's ever seen before out onto the market but then it always comes back to but we really need this product to be on the market mm. and and I, I think this of, of many successful businesses I mean if you think about Steve Jobs and Atlassian and Cochlear and all these groups it's not about getting a pat on the back or I've got to do this because I've got to prove to everyone I can do something it's about it sounds altruistic but it's it's a great thing and we need to get it out there and, mm. and you sort of take sacrifices off. At the same time, hopefully not being too stupid and becoming absolutely destitute and your family have no roof over their head. So, so it's, it's a balance. And it, I'd actually argue 
it's quite ironic that there are only very few female founded companies or founders or even board members, especially in Australia. But if you do have a supportive family and spouse or partner or whatever, it, it just makes it easier. Yeah. And yet it's a male-dominated area, startups or even venture capital, male-dominated, and yet they're taking huge risks all the time and some of them are the main breadwinner. So the level of stress on their shoulders must be incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. – so, yeah. There are, and, you know, I'm not I'm trying not to be naive thinking, you know, more women should get into it because there's a safe, you have to be responsible as well. And, and it is a very difficult journey and it can be psychologically heavy. You know, you go through these moments of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Are we, are we going to make it? Do we need to pivot? You know, um, or, you know, competitors just wiped us out. Those, that kind of thinking is going to be in your head all the time and that's on top of your private life mm. where's the value of death for evidently have you passed it already no well we need to get customers so there are a few values of death that we've already passed and there are more that you know in future and all companies have that journey even companies that have made it the big ones they've, they're more comfortable financially but they also have to keep getting to the next stage and building capability out. So you should never sort of rest on your laurels at any stage. Mm. And so talking about supporters and detractors, given the pressure that it gives you, did you have many supporters? People were supportive when you said, you know, I'm going to quit my job or part-time and go build this new technology. Were people supportive or were you discouraged? Yeah. Around? Well, for me, for me, supportive. So I'm lucky. This is back to having a very supportive family. <laughs> and also the people that were around me were very supportive through my network. So that was, that's very encouraging. The detractors, um, the biggest detractors come from, uh, ironically, customers that say we're going to build this ourselves. Mm. <laughs> there are a lot of people that say, but someone else is going to build it. We're going to do it ourselves. Or I suppose I don't understand it means that we have to work harder at communicating uh, what we do, mm -hmm. which hopefully will be easier when you get more feedback from, from use of the actual um, product. But, you know, I think it's great that people think they're going to build it themselves because if they try, they'll see the challenges. And then perhaps, you know, two years down the track, they'll come back to you and say, you know what, we tried, but it wasn't as easy as we thought. Hmm. That's right. And we've had that a few times. That's good. <laughs> but that helps validate where you're at, right? It helps. Oh, actually, we are onto something. And this is global feedback. This is not just our little community here. This is, you know, on the international stage. So that is very encouraging. And so let's talk about failure then. What's your biggest mistake in your journey as a funder? What's your biggest flop? Oh, well, I can't put my name on a specific one because there have been many. If you think about it statistically, if you have in percentages, you might have 10% complete failures, 10% that pop, and the rest just go sideways. <laughs> it can be quite extreme like that. And the sideways ones you have to spend a lot of time with because it could easily go into neither of them buckets uh, on either extreme. 
Do you want to give me an example? Because, you know, we always like on social media and everybody's winging it on LinkedIn and we're all amazing, but the reality isn't as rosy. <laughs> no, it's not as rosy. So I love to hear from people who lived it. So do you have an example you can share with us? An experience that you perceive as a failure bit? Yeah, it's quite interesting because the failures have been good failures. What I mean by that is, it might be that the technology works, but it, it fell because of one component mm. of that technology. Have I seen a failure where everything's failed, like technology management, everybody? Sometimes I've seen companies where the management have been shocking about corporate governance and lining their own pocket. The biggest failures have been with humans, usually, not so much that the technology has flopped, interestingly. The technology might, it'll be brilliant and it might not work, but it's got a good reason for not working, that mm. it wasn't able to do X, Y, Z, but it was, it was better than the current, but it still couldn't do X, Y, Z, something like that. But that is information. That is information, And people yeah. can use that to then leapfrog. The sort of ugly failures I've seen have usually been involved with humans making stupid mistakes. And how about the roller coaster emotional journey that goes with funding a company? How did that play out for you? It's, you know, one day it's, that's great, we've got this, and the next day it's not there. <laughs> and quite literally can be either within one day because you're suddenly, you're responsible not just for yourself, even though you may not be taking a proper salary or whatever. You're, you're responsible for your whole team. You're responsible for other investors who are already in there. There's a big weight on your shoulders. I know for all of us as founders, it's that sense of responsibility. We're saying this is great and it's going to work and then it's not going the way we want it to. And then suddenly it sounds okay again. <laughs> so it depends on everyone's different, how they manage stress. I walk my dog every day. And I think for me, I've seen a lot of these journeys before in other people and now I'm going through it myself. So... I'm kind of a bit more aware of it and ready for it that, you know, that's normal. We keep going, keep focusing. Whereas some of the other management, I suppose, may not have been exposed to that kind of fluctuation. And it depends how you take, if you take things like that personally or if you think about it more broadly. You know, some people carry it very heavily on their shoulders. It's my responsibility and it's my burden. What I'm hearing for you is almost for you, it's observational. This is there, this is part of the journey, this is part of the game, and you just go through it yeah. and, and follow it through. Yeah. But it doesn't mean I don't get stressed about it, you know, mm. but you have to keep going. If everything looks like it's about to absolutely go pen-shaped, mm -hmm. you have to do something about it. You can't just stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not happening yeah. as well. But like I said, some people take it more personally, like mm -hmm. it's an attack against them personally. As opposed to, we really tried this and it's um, fantastic and maybe someone else should yeah. make it work. Maybe we're not the right team for it or right team for it all. But you have to be practical about it. And Debbie, because you have four funders, is it hard to sometimes align on the vision? And does it happen often that there is conflicting opinions and conflicting priorities depending on who whose perspective you ask? And how do you manage that? Because four is... I can see what it brings, but it's also difficult from a people management person. It's a beautiful person. question. Beautiful question, now, but when we all have all our arguments. <laughs> I think it's really important to hear the different opinions, but 
at the end of the day, I think we've all got the same kind of end game in mind, but then there'll be differences of opinions of how to get there and who does what and those sorts of things. But if someone has a differing opinion, you need to listen. If everyone's saying the same thing and everyone's saying yes, 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 I'm not sure that's healthy Mm -hmm. or even realistic. (laughs) Mm. And so when you have a founder that has created the technology for 10 years and, you know, perhaps has a sense of ownership of it and the rest is bringing a lot of value but perhaps have less ownership in the product and that's an assumption. How do you make sure that everybody feels valued the same way? Oh, that's lovely. But this this level of trust right from the start. If it's a person that you don't trust, don't get involved. Mm. There definitely has to be trust and respect. Both trust and respect can change. Exactly. I know. And you're absolutely right. And we've been lucky, but I've seen that happen before and it can get absolutely very ugly. And you're not always going to get it right. Again, that's part of the journey. But what's your advice? How do you manage it within the four of you to that everybody feels valued and listened to? I think that trust and respect is already there, which is great. Then the money side of it, we all have equity in the business that we've pre-agreed. That's the flexible side that you have to think those things through. And if you change your mind in two years, you know, I suddenly want half of it, but you've done no work. Mm. It just depends then how you, do you split things up differently in the future or do you keep things the same? It comes down to the team. So you don't do a prenuptial contract at the beginning saying, here is going to split it. <laughs> so that when it turns ugly, we all clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see how you're all, where you're coming from. Yeah, maybe we should have done that. No. <laughs> well, I'm wondering because, you know, it's what I'm saying. You start and everybody's enthusiastic. And then at some point, you know, I don't know, four years, six years on the track. And I'm not yeah. saying the case that, you know, someone might say, well, yeah. I've done more work than you did. Or I put more money in and did it. Or whatever it is, you know, like at, at some point, people's heart change. Absolutely right. So that's just a risk and you have to hope for the best. Hope for the best. Hope for the best. Like I said, though, if there's anyone that you're not getting along with, that's sort of danger signs, right? Mm. It's a bit of a warning sign of what's about to come. Yeah. But again, that's why that first in the circle is really critical. Mm. The team, team is everything. Team is everything. You've got the product and the team. Mm. Back to my point about, well, management, 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 assuming you've got a great product. It's management. And you don't get it right. You don't always get it right. <laughs> a few more questions. What do you think, forget about evidently just a second, put you Alison hat. What do you think has enabled you the most? And what do you think has held you back the most? I suppose inner confidence and risk taking. I've always been a risk taker. And again, the supportive family has enabled me to maintain kind of certain courses in my life. Even at uni, like I was saying, doing different kind of things to the mainstream. Mm. I've been comfortable doing that. It's everybody enabling you to do that. It's, I think it's too difficult to do it on your own. Mm. Okay, so the right people around you. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the company, the right team. The right team. To take it forward. So it's all, it comes down to people. And do you think there's something that held you back or perhaps slowed you down into your entire thing? I suppose it's the belief in yourself yeah and the confidence it it comes down to psychology Mm. 
can I do this? Should I be doing it? Do I deserve it? You're talking about confidence and all that. How does it play out for you um, being one woman outnumbered by three other men? Yeah. Do you know, intuitively or intrinsically, I don't like this whole male-female debate. I've had fantastic women behind me. I've had fantastic men and I've had absolutely horrible men and horrible women who have been their own worst enemies, you know. Yeah, but women funders get 2% of the capitals. Yeah, yeah. It is very interesting that the guys definitely find it easier to ask for things. Mm -hmm. And that's in general. I think I found that through my career. I feel very privileged in, in a, to be with people who I really respect and they respect me. I've never felt anything like that, which has been absolutely incredible. Great. I think that's unusual, but I'd like to put it down to going back to do you trust and respect the people you're working with? And in our team, you know, we're even out of our engineers, we've got lots of girls in there and I absolutely love it. I'm absolutely supportive and I like to think that none of them feel belittled or anything like that. I think we're all sort of are just rolling our sleeves up and getting on with it and we don't even think about it. And that was Alison Gapner, co-founder and CFO at Evidently. It's interesting to see that we've gone a long way in data collection, understanding that the value is not in the devices, but in the data itself, and especially on what you make of it. And such a great perspective on the Australian investment landscape as it was 10 years ago, and how similar it is still. Despite decent amount of efforts to build the ecosystem and risk appetite for tech investment, Australia seems to be still very shy when it comes to these risky investments. And if you want to learn more about the investor perspective, I am preparing new episodes. Meanwhile, on the many takeaways from Alison's story, it takes confidence and risk-taking to be a founder and the ability to brush off the tough times, knowing that they're part of the game, not taking failure personally and knowing how to learn from these, but also knowing where you're not the right team to build a product and exit, sell, if this is what makes the most sense. And being strategic, not only about your co-founders, who you need to absolutely trust and respect, but also about your board, which needs to be fit for purpose to enable the growth and the exit strategy that you are envisioning. And if you're a founder looking to engage with your first customer and trying to get the price right, ask yourself, who could be your early adopter? Who can not only test your product, but also help you shape it with feedback? And if you are a student and conscious between some subjects, well, why not both? This will probably pave the way for an interesting and very unique career path for yourself. So go for it. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message. Thank you.